Old Testament scripture reading is Genesis 24. It's also the text for our sermon. If you look at Genesis 24 and then you flip the pages looking for Genesis 25, it takes a while to get there. This is, I think, our longest scripture reading ever. So, we have for us a reminder of what is always the case, that the public reading of Scripture is itself a means of grace. It is not simply the prelude to the sermon, but in the public reading of Scripture, God is at work. We read these words, uh, the entire chapter, all of it is one story. And we need the whole story for the sake of the message of this text this morning. So with that expectation, anticipating God's ministry to us through His Word, We hear the reading of Genesis 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which he came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master, And swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, Please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac." By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. 
And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As, as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife from, for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink that I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder. And she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink and I will give your camels drink also. 
So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah his mother and took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is Revelation 19, verses 6 through 10. This one is shorter. Revelation 19, verses 6 through 10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. 
It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. As we gather together around your word, we humbly pray for the presence and work of your Holy Spirit that we might see our Lord Jesus Christ, respond to him in faith, and live lives of faithfulness as we are made more like him. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, this morning as we come to Genesis chapter 24, we come to, as we have all noticed, a rather lengthy portion of Scripture. It is a long story with much detail, and many have pointed out that the sheer amount of detail, the length of it, the way the story is told, makes it stand out something like uniquely in the book of Genesis, especially among the stories of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this one stands out for its length and detail. And all of that then should make us pause to ask the question of why. Now, because it is long, there is much in it that we can talk about, and so I want to highlight up front one thing in particular that seems to be being emphasized, and one thing in particular that we can then sort of home in on to be deriving the text's message from. You might have noticed, you have this very long account of the servant going to the well, of the servant praying to the Lord about the sign by which he will know that the Lord is prospering his way, the account of Rebekah being discovered and then running home to tell his family, That story is told in a very lengthy way. And then, when her family comes out and the servant needs to persuade them to let him take Rebecca back for Isaac, the servant then tells that whole story again. So you have the whole story, and then you have the servant repeating the whole story. That seems to be the thing that is unique and strange. And so we want to ask... What then is highlighted by the fact that the servant repeats this story? Three things. First, there is the promise of God that is highlighted. The promises of God giving to Abraham. And we're going to note that in particular in verses 1 through 9. Second, there is the faithfulness of God in his providence. The repeating of the story brings out the providence of God. We're going to see that in verses, uh, verses 29, or no, excuse me, verses 10 through 28. And then there is the response of Rebecca. What all of that retelling of the story does, you see, the servant is nervous. Is any of this going to actually happen? Is her family going to let her go? Is she going to want to go? Is God prospering all of this? And the drama of the story then comes to hinge on that moment. Will Rebecca 
Go with the servant back to Isaac. And so we're going to see, thirdly, the response of Rebekah, verses 29 through 67. So, what's the hinge we're considering? There's this strangeness to the fact that the whole story is repeated in the words of the servant. What does that bring out? First, the promises of God. When the story begins, we are told that Abraham is old and advanced in years, and Isaac is not yet married. And Abraham's concern is that Isaac would find a wife. And so he gives his servant two main instructions. He is not to allow Isaac to marry one of the Canaanites. And that means he needs to go back to the land that Abraham comes from to find someone. Now, Abraham gives very broad instructions from his kindred, his family's land. The way the story goes, it ends up actually being from Abraham's extended family. But Abraham's point is not from the Canaanites. The second thing he tells his servant, if that doesn't work out, you must not let Isaac leave the promised land. So what are Abraham's two main concerns for Isaac? He needs to stay in the promised land, but he needs to not marry a Canaanite. Abraham sends his servant off then on this mission. And by the way, this is a very long journey his servant is being sent on to go find someone to marry Isaac. The servant, both in the events and then in the speech he gives, emphasizes God's faithfulness to those promises. What are the promises? That God or that Abraham would have the land of Canaan and that Abraham would have many descendants through Isaac, that this was the line of promise. Everything emphasizes God's faithfulness to that. So right there, we can home in on what is the point to this story. And let us be careful. All sorts of moral lessons we could derive from this. But if we jump to moral lessons about how we should live based on what Abraham does or what his servant does, we do not have gospel. We do not have good news. And so we have to ask, why is Abraham concerned about Isaac finding a wife? Is it simply because Isaac is his son, he cares about him, and he's familiar with this moral rule, Isaac should not marry from among the pagan Canaanites? Well, there is something to that. But what is the great concern in the book of Genesis? This is the line of promise. The drama of the story is that this is the family through whom God said all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This is the family through whom the promise of Genesis 3 the one who would be born to the woman who would crush the serpent's head. This is the family that was going to happen through. The drama of the story is that this is the line of promise ultimately leading to Christ. Abraham's concern is for the fulfillment of that. At every point in it, if the story had gone differently, there would be no Christ. At every point in it, if the twist in the story went the other way, if Isaac, excuse me, if the servant and Rebekah do not have the encounter at the well, if Laban and her, his family are not persuaded the way they were, if Rebekah did not agree to go, if she and Isaac did not have what seems to be described as a kind of love at first sight, if none of this had happened in the drama of the story, there would be no Christ. Are we okay with the point of the story being 
all for the glory of Christ. Are we okay with the point to the drama of this text being everything was headed to Jesus, everything was for the sake of Jesus, and for the sake of our salvation being accomplished in him? We all have the temptation to every once in a while feel or think or experience as though that is kind of repetitious. When I, as a minister, am planning a sermon, I have the temptation to feel the need to find a twist or a different kind of angle and make sure it doesn't feel like we're simply repeating this focus on Christ. And all of us are Christians, are te- as Christians are tempted to want something other than that. This text, like every passage of Scripture, challenges us to want, to desire, as the main thing every Lord's Day, to have Christ presented to us from God's Word, to hear in God's Word the voice of our Savior speaking to us. Part of the whole point to what we do together as Christians on the Lord's Day is the repetition that every week, At the beginning of the week, we need to be reoriented in this way. Every week, as we begin a week of service to the Lord, we need to be reminded of what we are living for and toward, what God has done for us in Christ. And so every week, we need to come to the text of Scripture to be reminded of our sin, to be drawn to confess our sin, to be shown Christ as the one in whom God has worked all of salvation, to be shown the life we are called to in Him. All of that is centered around Christ. Let us never grow bored of that. Now, the point to that is not to then, um, how do we say this, to pietistically burden us, Because if we all look inside, we all know we are tempted to find that to not to be enough, to want something else. The point is the grace of this, the gospel of this, that God in his grace turns you toward himself. Now, on the one hand, we can say every text of scripture, God's faithfulness to his promises in Christ is the point. But it is inflected, we might say. It is uh, given a different flavor, a different angle of light in every text. And so we want to see that as well. So secondly, we see in this passage, the big picture is God's promises for the sake of Christ. That is Abraham's concern. But there is a particular something that is brought out. And that something is God's faithfulness in his providence. His providential ordering of all things. So, When the servant sets out, Abraham says, God is going to send his angel before you. God is going to bless your way. Abraham is confident in this because God has given him these promises. The servant seems to be not quite so sure. And so Abraham says, look, if it doesn't work out this way, then you are relieved of the promise you have made, right? But Abraham's confident it's going to work out. The servant, He finally arrives at a particular city in the land of Mesopotamia where he's been going all along. And he goes to the well in the evening and we're told this is the normal time when the the women would be coming out to draw water. He's arrived there at the end of his journey. And he is naturally thinking, so how am I going to find someone for Isaac? Where do you even start? What is the plan here? 
So he, and, and, and the servant, by the way, is portrayed as very faithful. The, the servant is portrayed as one who uh, is faithful to Abraham, but also seems to have a very real faith in the Lord and love for the Lord. So the servant sets up something of a sign, a way he's going to know who the one is who is from the Lord. Verse 12, And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. He's going to ask the young lady to give him a drink. And he's looking for the one who says, and let me water your camels as well. Now, I I want us to be careful how we hear this sign. This is not so much the servant asking for a uh, mystical intervention. We think, for example, of Gideon putting out the fleece and challenging the Lord to say, I'm going to put the fleece out and there's dew all around it and it's dry or it has dew and it's dry all around. I'm going to make up this test and then I'm going to know. This test is not made up in that way. What is the servant looking for? We could summarize it like this. He is saying to the Lord, help me find a woman who is in very obvious ways energetically hospitable. Help me find a woman who is in very obvious ways ready to be the wife of the patriarch of the clan of Abraham and Isaac. He's asking for something that would have shown something about her. And so he's simply, in effect, simply praying that God would help him find a woman who is from the land, perhaps even the family of Abraham, and who shows signs of being someone who is energetically hospitable. It's not a random, arbitrary test. He's simply praying, help me find the right kind of woman for Isaac. And if I do find someone, I will know, Lord, that you are the one prospering it, because Abraham has said, this is what you have promised to do. Now, is there a, a something extra happening in this by which God is revealing something to the servant? There does seem to be. Later on, they're going to say, this is how we know this is from the Lord. And so we have to remember, this is not the ordinary way. This is the patriarch who has received the promise of being the one through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed through his servant seeking God's fulfillment of that promise. We are not all in that situation. So we have to remember the uniqueness of the situation of Abraham and Isaac and his family and not draw direct connections to how things should go for us, but nevertheless also see the ordinariness of it. The servant is praying, help me find someone who will be just right for Isaac. Well, this happens. And we are told multiple times, because it happens, we're told it by the narrator in the account, and then we are told when the servant retells the story, that Rebekah approaches the well while he was still praying, while these thoughts were still in his heart. Then, everything that Rebekah does in the details that are brought out in the story are what the servant prayed for and then some. So, 
she expresses an eagerness to be hospitable that is beyond the basic description he had asked for. Not only is she from the land of Abraham, but she is a a family. She is from the, the, the extended family of Abraham. Not only is she the one in, in the sense of fitting those criteria, but then she eagerly runs off, we are told, to go tell her family about this. Everything that happens is beyond what the servant prayed for, and the beginning of it happening, we, we're told it's emphasized, was while he was still praying. Now, what all of this brings out and I know the reading was long, so I want to count on us having caught details in the reading, and we're going to cut to the chase here. What all of that brings out is God's providential ordering of every detail. That God had been involved in all of it. And there's a beautiful, I don't, I'm not sure if the twist is the right word, but there's a beautiful emphasis in the fact that it was happening while he was still praying. Meaning, his prayer did not manipulate it. His prayer did not make it happen. It was already long planned in the ordering of what God was doing that this moment would come about. And the servant's prayer was simply his orienting himself toward that. His humbly expressing his reception of what God was doing. We have, as a result of the details, as a result of the servant retelling the story, this beautiful portrayal, God's providential ordering of every detail. We must say that that is, first of all, uniquely about this event for the sake of Christ. That what God was doing was providentially ordering all things for the sake of the coming of the Christ. And we should celebrate that, exalt in that, glory in that. We can also say, secondly, so first, it is uniquely this event for the sake of Christ. But we can also say, secondly, that there is something being revealed about who God is, about the character of God, and revealed about who God is and the character of God and what God does that applies at all times and all places, that God's sovereign, providential care of the world extends to all things, to every detail in his faithfulness of bringing about all that he has promised. We can imagine, for example, how that broader message would have spoken to, would have mattered for all different circumstances in the later life of Israel. Israel, about to enter the promised land and facing all of the conflict and the fear that would be involved with the Canaanites, Israel, later on in exile, feeling small and beleaguered and threatened. This story would have stood as the message to Israel that your existence as the people of God is always within God's providential care. That your very existence as the people of God from the beginning is something that God brought about, that he cared for, that he ordered all the way down to the details of this meeting at the well between Rebecca and the servant. And you see, brothers and sisters, that continues to speak to the church of Jesus Christ. The providential ordering of all things for the sake of Christ, for the existence of Israel, Then in Christ, the church of Jesus Christ as the true Israel of God. Our existence as the church, 
belongs to, is within, is governed by, is sustained by God's providential care in everything. But there's further depth to that in this account. I worry sometimes that for many of us, whether we've grown up in the Reformed tradition or whether we are new to it, both versions bring this temptation to make much of God's providence in a way that thinks and speaks of it simply as a matter of power, simply as a matter of control, that speaks and feels and thinks of God's providence simply as a matter of God being super, super strong and making things happen. That is not the language of this text. The prayer that the servant gave, verse 14, By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. The language here is of steadfast love, covenant faithfulness, God binding himself to his people. Later on, after all of this has happened, Leading up to verse 26 and 27. So there's all these things happening where it's clear that God is bringing to the servant even better, even more than he had asked for. Verse 26, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. What is emphasized? Not first of all God's power though that is clearly assumed and taught by the text. Everything's being ordered by God. Clearly, his power is there. What is being emphasized? God's steadfast love. Brothers and sisters, I know a lot of the circumstances being faced by folks in this congregation right now. I also know there are lots of things that I don't know. We need to be reminded over and over and over and over that when we speak of God's providence, this is not a matter of fate. This is not a matter of simply things being predetermined in a mechanical, mechanistic way. This is not a matter of mere power and control. It is a matter of the Creator's steadfast love for you. It is a matter of the Creator in Christ having bound you to Himself, having committed Himself to you. And what this story brings out is that God orders all things for the sake of that steadfast love, for the sake of, as an expression of, that faithfulness to you as His creature and as His adopted child in Christ. There are many ways in which we are tempted to make it simply a matter of power and control. Doctrinal ways, experiential ways. Allow God's grace, God's love in his ordering of all things to speak to you through and from this text. Remember what we said a moment ago, making much of, it's one of my favorite moments of tension in the story. There's two, we're going to get to the last one here in a moment. One of my favorite moments is the He's praying, and Rebecca is coming to the well while he is still praying. He hasn't even completed it yet. God's been ordering all things all along. And in that moment, we've been having to summarize things here, but we know things from the narrator that the servant doesn't know yet. 
It is a gradual step-by-step revealing that God is at work. And in fact, even at this point at the well, it's still not clear, is her family going to let her go? Is she going to even want to go? But I want you to stay in that moment for a moment. Because we, in our lives, are all in that moment. Where we have prayed about something. A particular thing in our lives the movement of God through the history of the world and everything in between. And we're in the moment where we've prayed and we have not seen the full answer. Maybe glimmers, maybe God has encouraged you with encouragements that you can see and they're visible. That is a blessing, celebrate that. But even as you celebrate the glimmers of those blessings, we so often still do not have the whole picture. We are called to live by faith in that moment, that in-between time of the prayer is poured out. We do not see the whole answer, but to be confident that God has been at work all along. He has been at work before the prayer was even uttered. While he was still speaking, everything had been ordered to bring Rebecca to the well. This is true for the sake of Christ, It is true for God's maintaining the existence of the church. It is true for your life at this very moment. God is at work in his providential care, expressing his steadfast love to you in all things. And brothers and sisters, the joy of this text is the way that moment in the midst of all the details and drama of the story brings out that glorious truth. Finally, we see this morning the response of Rebecca. So at this point in the account, uh, the servant has prayed. God has brought to him one that he has all of these indicators seems to be a perfect fit for Isaac. She has showed herself to be vigorously, energetically hospitable. She is not only from the right land, she's from the right family. All sorts of drama remains. He loads her up with jewels. Why? Well, this isn't just to impress her. He knows he has to persuade her family to let her go. And so this is all part of the effort now to persuade them. She goes to her mother's household, a uh, fascinating reference, by the way, emphasizing that it be her mother's household, all sorts of discussions about what that means. And her family comes out, and we discover that This Laban is in many ways the one who's running the household, or at least he is the one being the main spokesman. And the servant figures out that he has to persuade this Laban. Verse 30 is a key moment in the drama that then ensues. Uh, Verse 29, Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. Why does he run out? Well, he saw all the jewels on Rebekah. Verse 30, As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, hold on, what's being emphasized here is Laban's greed. He is seeing this wealth. He's like, okay, I am intrigued. Maybe we will let her go. In fact, one writer points out, uh, the verse seems to bring this out in a further way. As verse 30 continues, thus the man spoke to me, or uh, And when he heard the words of Rebekah's sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. 
One writer said this would be like he was standing by his private jet at the spring. Meaning, ten camels is also a tremendous expression of wealth. And so what Laban is being dazzled by is all of this wealth that Rebekah has and the wealth of the way that he traveled here. All right. Well, this complicates the negotiations in a couple ways. The servant needs to persuade Laban and the family. And we're being told for the sake of the later story that however much Rebekah is portrayed as being faithful, and she is, Laban is not. And that's going to matter later. He's going to come up later in the drama. And so this moment is already setting that up, that when he encounters what is going on at the well, he keeps noticing all the money signals. Well, the servant, when he retells the story, he brings out certain things that we had not been told earlier. He makes much, for example, of the fact that Abraham is wealthy. And he makes much of the fact, he says, Abraham has given to Isaac all that he has. So he's telling Laban, all of that wealth is going to be given to Isaac. We're pretty sure you should be okay with your sister coming along. Well, eventually, through that whole discussion, the family agrees. Verse 50, Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord had spoken. The story goes on. They eat and drink together. They've made the deal. That meal is an expression, a festive meal, is an expression of the deal having been made, a kind of covenant-making ceremony. They get up in the morning, and then Laban tries to delay. And this moment needs to be highlighted. There's a couple reasons. Let's read. It's in verse 55. Her brother, that's Laban, and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. Well, two things to notice here. First, in the language of it, the translation, a while, at least 10 days, is a very debated translation. It's very possible the a while, at least 10 days, is emphasizing something much longer. That actually, they want weeks, maybe months, is what they're hoping for. And the worry, the possibility is maybe they're hoping they can get out of this somehow. Maybe they're trying to hope this won't actually come about. And so the servant doesn't want to allow the delay. He says, the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away. I, I, I can't wait this long. And maybe the servant's even worried this whole deal could fall apart. And they agree, let Rebecca decide. So the first thing you need to hear here is the potential that the delay they're asking for is actually way more than 10 days. This also is important for Laban later in the story, Jacob and Rachel and Leah and that whole drama. But the second reason this is so important is the hinge of the whole thing comes down to Rebekah. Verse 58, and they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? It all comes down to this. They all seem to be allowing the possibility she might say no. And so as much as it is uh, uh, portrayed as an arranged marriage of sorts, very ordinary in the culture, that's not supposed to be strange, there is this moment that comes down to how will Re Rebecca reply. And what I so eagerly want to try to bring out for you this morning is that Rebecca is awesome. She is portrayed in the story 
as quite possibly the hero of the story. She is portrayed in this account as motivated by faith, and even prior to this moment being motivated by faith, because what is she going to say? I will go. After all the story brings out, this is from the Lord, and the word Yahweh is used, the Lord, the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they've confessed it's from the Lord, that suddenly there is this extra dimension that sheds back on the rest of the story of just how great Rebecca is. Throughout the account, the narrator has used assertive, vigorous, energetic verbs for everything Rebecca does. She is running around. She is doing things. She is making things happen. Energetic verbs are used for her work of watering um, the servant and his men and the camels at the well. She runs back to her family to tell them about this. And here, she speaks assertively at the moment of tension and drama, saying, I will go. She is energetic, assertive, involved at every point in the account. And that is something that would be noticed, that should be noticed as being highlighted in the story. In many ways, in God's providence, she is driving things. And I want to, I'm pleading with you, especially if you know these stories from Genesis, to let this stand out at this moment. Because there's going to be a story in a little few chapters later where everyone is very tempted to be really hard on Rebecca. And I want to propose to you that I think she's the one who's getting it all right. And part of the portrayal of her being the one who gets it right is the way she is portrayed here. She says, I will go. She is the one like Abraham who is willing to leave his father's house and go to a distant land for the sake of the promises of God. The story has emphasized the theological character of what is happening, that they know God is at work. And when she says, I will go, this is a faith-filled response to what God is doing. She's being like Abraham, and she's going in that to be sacrificing much. She is going on a lengthy journey, leaving a settled place where she lives with extended family to go live sojourning among the Canaanites. She is sacrificing much for the sake of this call of the Lord upon her life. And we know from the later story she is going to suffer. Living among the Canaanites is part of how Esau will bring so much suffering upon the family. And we'll be told later on that Esau made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Rebekah is entering into a life out of her faith in God's promises that will result in suffering and bitterness. With those words, I will go, Rebekah is a foreshadowing of Mary. When the angel tells her what's going to be happening, to be the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And she says, let it be to me according to God's word. That willingness to suffer, Mary's suffering beyond what Rebecca would suffer, that willingness to suffer for the sake of the Christ. And so Elizabeth, or excuse me, Elizabeth. Well, Elizabeth will also, but that's later. Rebecca here beautifully portrays faithfulness in response to the promises of God. And so as we make much of God's promises, faith in those promises always and ever leads to action and Rebecca portrays that beautifully. But it does show for the sake of Christ. And I hope you notice that third dimension arise all of a sudden. That this story ends with a wedding. 
Rebecca approaching Isaac. We're told that Isaac loves her. She becomes the matriarch of the house. This story ends with a wedding because that is the shape of reality. All of this for the sake of the son. That marriages exist because of God's purpose for the relationship between Christ and the church. So that all of God's providential ordering of all things for Isaac and Rebekah was for the sake of that line of promise, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the church. And that is, then, the good news of Genesis 24. That God is providentially ordering everything for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the church, for the sake of your particular life and what you are facing right now, and with the promise that you will arrive by faith at that marriage supper of the Lamb when Christ returns. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for the glory of Christ. We ask that you would help us to live by faith in response to that glory, and that you would make us faithful, willing to sacrifice and live for you in response to the gospel that you have proclaimed. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.